0: So, Miles, I've been thinking about protoplasm.
1: That's more of a DC thing, isn't it, Jay? Like the Legion of Superheroes pet, or that one Supergirl nobody talks about anymore.
0: Miles, protoplasm is for everyone. Just look at Rainfire, or hey, our old buddy Random.
1: Oh, right, Random was goo until Dark Beast helped stabilize him. Man, I really don't understand why people keep going to that guy for help.
0: Well, he is effective for at least some value of the term.
1: Yeah, but then there's all the other stuff. Oh, you mean the murders and the horrifying scientific experimentation on innocent people,
0: and the time he got Nate Gray fired from his job as a cabin boy. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 418 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
1: And welcome back to a run we have been enjoying the hell out of. We are back in John Francis Moore and Adam Polina's X-Force run. Well, with one guest issue... With one guest issue, although Adam Polina still does the art on that, so it's like a half-guest issue. And it's still excellent. It is still excellent, yes. Mainly really good cover. I mean, the insides are good too, but we'll get to that. That cover just always stuck in my mind. So, X-Force, this is the road trip era. The team is just driving around the country, getting into random adventures, but still beset by continuity.
0: This is specifically going to be the end of the road trip era, which is a little bit sad because I've really been digging it.
1: But John Francis Moore keeps writing for a while, so I'm pretty sure we're still going to love it.
0: Hell yeah. I feel like Moore is kind of a forgotten treasure of the X-Line. Like, no one ever brings his era up or his run up as a significant era in in X-Force or in in X-Books, but it's got such a distinctive voice, and it's so good in ways that I think I've really been hungry for through through Loeb.
1: Very much so, I agree. It's non-traditional, but in such a confident, consistent way.
0: We are, of course, predisposed to favor more after reading the spectacular, and again, forgotten Wolverine Killing. Ah, such
1: a delight. But speaking of things we would not dare forget, let's talk about what X-Force has been up to.
0: Well, like any good super team, X Force, um, this being the name that the Teenage New Mutants took when they got older and became more extreme, has accumulated a variety of nemeses. One such nemesis is the Mutant Liberation
1: Front, a terrorist organization doing awful things in the name of, well, you know, mutant liberation.
0: The Mutant Liberation Front was initially led by Cable's clone, the heavily bladed and angst ridden Strife, but when Strife died, For the first time, the team was taken over by a scary silhouetted man with a truly righteous head of hair, and that man was named Rainfire.
1: That's R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. Fire is spelled
0: the normal way, though. Thank God, it was the 90s. It could so easily have been F-Y-R-E. Or F-Y-Y-R-E. F-Y-R-R-H-H-E. Throw some
1: umlauts over half the letters and you're golden.
0: It kind of fits. Rainfire is, is a somewhat new metal feeling villain.
1: Oh, geez, now I just want to see him wearing a backward baseball cap like Adam X.
0: God damn it.
1: Anyway, during X Force's first fight with this new MLF, longtime X Force member Roberto DaCosta, aka Sunspot, suddenly taught himself to fly out of desperation and crashed into the MLF's teleporter Locus, sending them both spiraling off to somewhere.
0: Or possibly some when, because the next time Locust showed up, she claimed that she and Sunspot had been stuck in the future.
1: And the next time Rainfire showed up, he revealed himself to have been Sunspot in disguise all along. What? But then the world temporarily ended thanks to the Age of Apocalypse, and when we checked in with X-Force after it unended, Sunspot was back on the team, and Rainfire was no more.
0: So apparently Cable had telepathically removed the evil Rainfire persona from Sunspot between issues, and taught him some Ascani. Since then, X-Force, now a smaller
1: team consisting of Sunspot, Siren Mirage, Warpath, and Boom Boom, aka Boomer, aka Meltdown, has traded in their spandex for civvies and has been road-tripping across America.
0: Getting into all sorts of MTV-era adventures and young adult drama along the way. For instance, Sunspot and Meltdown have hooked up, much to the shock of Meltdown's actual boyfriend well, now ex-boyfriend, Cannonball.
1: Which kinda-sorta brings us to X-Force number 77, City of Lost Children.
0: This issue is written by Joseph Harris, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Marie Javins, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft and Emerson Miranda. Joe Harris, yeah. uh, Harris did the Generation
1: X holiday special we covered a while back, and he's also going to write the Bishop the Last X-Man series a little bit after this.
0: Right on. This particular issue is definitely not to be confused with the 1995 science fiction movie of the same name. Oh yeah, directed by the same person that did Amelie. Wait, what? I did not know that, but somehow it makes perfect sense.
1: Right? Yeah, like City of Lost Children has this very twee, very French feel to it, and is still City of Lost Children. It's a weird movie, but I like it.
0: That was one that was recommended to us, I think, by Video Renaissance when they didn't have Dark City. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very different than Dark City, actually.
1: But, you know, also fun.
0: But also very much one of those, if you like, then you might enjoy.
1: that was such a great old video store. That was back when we were in high school, the owner knew everything.
0: It was amazing. Like, you could go in and not have been in there since you were like seven and then be like 16, and he would recognize you and ask you how your parents were doing, and remember what you had rented.
1: Oh, man, I'm the opposite of that. I can't remember what happened five minutes ago.
0: That's because he he stole all the memories. It's it's like in tacto and the, the sort of hoarding of luck. It's like that, but um but memory.
1: Anyway, we briefly alluded to the cover of this issue, and it is gorgeous. It's this sepia-toned cover of boom boom with her hand on the shoulder of a pigtailed little girl as they sit next to each other on swings and they're surrounded by these gently floating little time bombs. It's so idyllic, which is not a term one typically associates with boom boom.
0: It's idyllic. It's peaceful in a very specifically sort of rurally tinged way, which fits this issue really well. So um, we start in the town of almost Reno, New Mexico, which is a great goddamn name. <laughs> um, and there are two kids, Mary and Johnny, hide in an abandoned shed to show each other their secret talents. We don't know what Mary's is, but when Johnny snaps his fingers, his whole hand lights up with fire. And there's this
1: sort of, not exactly fairy tale, but very wistful, very narrative quality to the narration. Narrative quality to the narration? Yeah, let's go with that. For instance.
0: Maybe you could fly, or walk through walls, or race the speed of light. Imagine, who wouldn't like to fly? So one week later, the local sheriff finds Johnny's burned body in the desert, only to have S.H.I.E.L.D. show up and do the usual black suit, we'll take it from here, business. And the setup here looks like it's going to be bigoted rural cops and folks versus the good guys. And that is, in fact, not what the story is. And I am absolutely here for this inversion of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely agreed. That's one thing that I like about the X-Force road trip era in general, is you get to see all these different sides of all these different places, and more seldom sort of takes the easy way out of just fully stereotyping everyone.
0: Yeah, this, this issue, I actually checked... With, to see if Bob Prohl was familiar with, with this issue, because it gives me such strong nobody people vibes. And he wasn't, which shocked me. but um, yeah, if you've read that, if you've read that, you'll like this, and also the movie City of Lost Children." So shortly thereafter, X-Force finds itself in almost Reno and learns about Johnny's death from a local paper, and the local paper specifies that he burned, but not that he was burned, or the mechanism. And that gets X-Force curious.
1: And I just love this premise of this era. Like, here's X-Force stuck in a random rural town after getting lost on the road, reading a story in the paper about what happened in the television-style cold open that we just saw, getting involved even though some of them don't want to. Like, it's this mutant teen adventure procedural. Meltdown at one point even refers to their car as the mystery machine, while like Siren holds up a fist and scowls at Tabitha. It's wonderful. Yeah, so if anyone uh, is new with this episode, weird place to jump in, but welcome. Tabitha And Meltdown and Boom Boom and Boomer are all the same character, and we tend to use those names somewhat interchangeably.
0: I've been trying to stick to Meltdown at this point, since that's her codename in continuity, um, and just go between that and and Tabitha, which is what she goes by when she's, you know, in normal clothes. It's also what she wants to be called, and I respect that.
1: But it's just that Boom Boom is such a good name. It
0: really is. It's it's such a fantastic codename.
1: Ah, well... Anyway, the art here is great. Like, as much as we talk about Moore's writing, Adam Polina is just killing it on this entire run, and part of the previous run. There's this great panel as they're all crammed into their car, of Mirage intensely reading the newspaper about this story, Warpath with his forehead in his hand as he's, like, staring confused at the map, Siren blissfully eating a burger— meltdown holding her nose as she waves her hand in front of her face and they're all just like crammed in so tightly there's so much personality even in this motionless mostly silent panel
0: do you know what this reminds me of just intensely what's that it's this one brett levin's panel of the new mutants and it's the one where they're all they're all studying and they're all in the living room and um eliana's balancing a pencil on her upper lip and it's just it's it's got so much life and so much action and so much sort of minute characterization to it and polina really feels like he's he's got that same that same skill
1: oh yeah polina and blevins have so much in common not just because their art styles look kind of similar really i think so yeah just in in the sense that the characters are a little (sighs) super deformed is the wrong word that's like an anime term but their faces are just a little bit plastic. Their heads tend to be a little bit more focused on and bigger sometimes. I guess that varies with Polina's art.
0: Mm, I think of, of Blevins as a much, much cartoonier artist. But they're expressive
1: in similar ways. I think yeah. I also link them because I didn't like their art at all when they first started their runs and grew to absolutely love it for both of them.
0: Same. They hone in on similar details. Yeah. So they're all in a diner when they're reading this newspaper, and the sheriff happens to be there, and he interjects, he hears them, overhears them talking, and interjects to warn them off in in true beginning of any procedural where you find out about something in a small-town diner fashion.
1: This here is a quiet town, with good, hard-working folk who like it that way. Plenty of fine roads run through here leading to all sorts of other places, most of which young people like yourselves will find much more exciting i'm making myself clear
0: he is and tabitha is on the same page and really wants to get the dodge out of hell especially after bobby has a weird apparently racist encounter in the bathroom
1: tangenting off of that so we've mentioned this before but this is definitely an era where bobby is drawn with much lighter skin than he initially was when he was first a character yeah. uh, he initially had extremely dark skin he was afro-brazilian and it seems like now a lot of the artists in this era are focusing on, oh, he's Brazilian, and just sort of going for their assumed uh, way that he would look. So yeah, kind of lightish brown skin. It's weird,
0: and it's frustrating both for what it is and for what we know that it's on a it, it's a step on the path towards which is the habitual pretty extreme whitewashing of that character.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think Sunspot is probably the uh, most notable example of whitewashing, certainly in the X-Universe.
0: Now, Tabitha is overruled because the other X-Force kids chance across a restricted area on a map, and it's a former nuclear test site. And they're like, oh, hell, we got to investigate this. Yeah, what else are we going to do this weekend?
1: But they get to investigate the hard way.
0: Well, Bobby and Tabitha do, because the team splits up at this point, and the two of them head to the local library to do some research, and they realize two things. First, all kinds of weird shit happened here in the 60s, and second, all the local kids are mutants. Or at least a lot of them. Enough that they they make up a significant demographic group in the town, and I love this idea. I I love it so much, like the tiny town where all the kids are mutants and that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. It also rings really true to a lot of sort of small towns and a lot of of, of very insular communities. Um, I would, for instance, if this is something that interests you or something that reads as unrealistic to you, look up the history of deafness and deaf culture on Martha's Vineyard. Huh. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, that's a pretty good example, but there are there are definitely plenty of others. And Mary, meanwhile, is one of the kids we saw initially, has developed telepathy, and she overhears her mom thinking that she's just like the others and worrying that she's going to die. And so a scared Mary runs away to where Johnny ran, which is exactly where X-Force happens to be investigating. And they wouldn't come across her except that she tries to scare them away telepathically. And they find her, and it turns out that she's scared that, that some undefined they are gonna come and take her away.
1: And that they turns out to be shield agents. Now, in this era, normally we see shield agents as these muscly dudes and tight spandex with lots of pouches and big laser rifles and such.
0: Here they are straight-up men in black with submachine guns.
1: They are, which certainly makes them a lot more menacing. Like, they're not just random superhero characters, they're scary, government-shadowy figures.
0: I find it really interesting that we find... The more bureaucratic-looking version of them, more implicitly threatening than, like, the militarized version.
1: I mean, the militarized version at least has the decency to look like G.I. Joe characters, and thus a lot less like something we see in our day-to-day.
0: Well, and the Suits ones have, you know, decades of that archetype to to build on. Very much. So, Mary telepathically knocks everyone out and flees, and when they all come to, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s willing to talk to them, because remember, Danielle Moonstar until recently was working for S.H.I.E.L.D., so she's still got some ins there, and they explain to X-Force that almost the almost Reno kids are only sort of mutants. They're the result of the town's accidental atomic exposure a generation previously, and most of them end up dying due to complications from their powers. So this is interesting, because we've seen sort of an artificial division evolve in the X-Books between mutants and characters who are mutated um we that's established very very early for example in the first generation of x-factor with um i don't remember the characters names it's glowworm and
1: oh the uh, two morlocks you mean uh, yeah. glowworm and bulk i believe Was it either yeah, bulk or slab so. one of them
0: but yeah this this distinction between between mutants who have x genes and you know mutated humans whose mutations derive from somewhere else but that overlooks the fact that We've seen characters with X genes, most significantly Charles Xavier himself, presented as the result of their parents being exposed to atomic radiation.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, the X-Men are called children of the atom for that reason. That was part of the initial premise. These were kids whose parents had been around radiation in various ways, and thus their offspring's genetics were X-ified.
0: And then, you know, became more widespread and, and all of that. But yeah, the that distinction is one that really interests me. And you also see, you know, the Warpies, which again are, are distinct from mutants, who are mm-hmm. byproducts of the Jasper's Warp.
1: Right. And the Silver Age explanation for all the mutant kids, it's going to turn out to be more complicated in a future issue. But I love that that's sort of where we're going with this, that it's hearkening back to that old 60s Silver Age trope.
0: I like that, but I wish that they were explicitly still capital M mutants, too.
1: I think they count as mutants, not mutates. I don't know. It's ambiguous.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure because they're they're only defined as sort of mutants here. Now, Tabitha remembers growing up mutant in a small town, and she remembers that it fucking sucked. The other kids picked on her and her father was abusive. And she decides that she's going to try to reach out to Mary. So with the rest of X-Force's backup, she goes and she finds Mary who's sitting alone at recess. And she makes friends with her and gives her a very kind... Very Tabitha version of the gets better talk.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's very kind, she's very compassionate. She's also a little bit of that chaos elemental that she always is. For instance, Mary looks into Tabitha's mind and notices her thinking about boys and is a little grossed out, but it's just so kind and sweet. And I love this version of Boom Boom. I mean, the version of Boom Boom we see uh, sometimes since Next Wave, the one who's sort of more ditzy that was based on Paris Hilton initially. She's a lot of fun, but this Boom Boom, this, yes, chaotic, yes, short-sighted and sometimes self-centered, but also very clever, compassionate, very aware character, I think is is really my Boom Boom at this point.
0: Yeah, definitely agreed. Now, S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up, but Mary telepathically blasts them, then collapses, complaining of a headache. And her mom rushes to help, but as Tabitha turns to leave, Mary turns back to her and winks, and she's clearly got the situation under control.
1: And that's that. It's just this sweet little one-shot
0: issue. Well, it's a one-shot issue, but we're gonna see these kids again in X-Force 86. Still, it's a fun one, though. That brings us to the ongoing story with X-Force number 78. Burning Desires.
1: Written once again by a returning John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Mark Morales, colored by Steve Buccelato, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And in Sao Paulo, Brazil, the CEO of DaCosta International, the company owned by Sunspot's family, is scared and hiding because he The company board members have been getting attacked, and sure enough, his bodyguards are pulled through portals and he is confronted by a muscly red man wearing techno-pants. It is Rainfire, former leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, and a guy that for all intents and purposes shouldn't exist because last we checked, he was the secondary evil personality of Sunspot that Cable had gotten rid of.
0: That's right. These three issues are a massive, massive retcon.
1: They are but they're a fun one. With Rainfire is a woman we've often seen with him, that is Locus. In this case, she's not wearing a superhero costume, she's just a slim black woman with hair and twin poofy buns. She was definitely not portrayed that way in the past. I think last time we saw her, she was white and had long blonde hair. Her appearance is is all over the place. At one point, some fans wrote in to ask what was up, and Marvel said that she got a tan and dyed her hair, which, well, that's certainly an answer you could have. Anyway, in the next story we see her in, she'll be white again so be it. But let's talk about Rainfire. We talked about Rainfire some in the previously on segment, but uh, yeah, he's back, and we've actually seen a little more of, it turns out, him previously. There had been a shadowy, fiery figure following X-Force around during their road trips, and, you know, killing random people. So, yeah. This time, he is here to continue his campaign of revenge against Sunspot by taking over DaCosta International
0: because he is not the same person as as Bobby DaCosta, despite the fact that they look identical and everyone mistakes him for Bobby.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll very much get to all that. But first, Boom Boom is having a dream of being on the Gary Singer show, obviously a reference to the old Jerry Springer show, which was famously trashy. A uh, random note, Jerry Springer lived in the town that we both grew up in. I just took a boat tour last time I was there, and we drove by what used to be his house. He went to my mom's shoal for a while.
0: Really? That rabbi was a dick. I wonder if he encouraged him. Yeah, I don't know.
1: There were a few rabbis there. Yeah, one of them was definitely a dick. Anyway, in this case, Dream Sunspot and Dream Cannonball are brawling in the sky above the audience when Boom Boom's infidelity becomes clear. And I love this. She wakes up next to Sunspot, is annoyed that he's sleeping soundly when she's having nightmares about being guilty, and just smacks him on the shoulder with him having no idea why, and then gets up. Uh Aw. It's pretty great. She also still has the pink bunny slippers she had back in the Jeff Loeb run. I love that she just continues to travel with those. Fucking good. You have those slippers,
0: you're not going to ditch them.
1: They're great, right? What's also great is a little gimmick in this issue, which is a series of X-Force fun facts, for
0: instance. While many superhero groups are funded by the government or wealthy patrons, the members of X-Force refuse to sell out. Consequently, they're broke.
1: And because they're broke, that's why they're staying where they're staying, which is with their old friend Sally Blevins, a.k.a. Skids. Jay, remember her? Fuck yeah, Skids! Yeah, she went from being one of the Morlocks, to being one of the X-Factor trainees back in the early incarnation of X-Factor, to being on the New Mutants briefly, to joining the Mutant Liberation Front, to joining Magneto's Acolytes. She has been all over the place. The last time we saw her was back in Adjectiveless X-Men number 44 in 1995. That was when Holocaust destroyed Magneto's space station and the Acolytes all had to escape. But these days, she's a student and very much not a superhero. She is 100% done with all of that and keeps telling X-Force that. She kind of reminds me of Excelsior or the loners from Runaways, the ex-superhero support group. And the grinning, just-woke-up boom-boom in her bunny slippers and rumpled sleep shirt is such a great contrast to the serious-faced Sally in her baseball cap, and oversized shirt, and backpack. Like, Sally is so very serious right now, like, she's trying so hard to just be a student and not let any of this superhero madness back into her life.
0: Despite the fact that it's camped out on her living room floor.
1: Sure is. And Boom Boom reminds her, hey, remember that time we were in the New Mutants? Even if the caption we see labels the obvious short-haired character Wolfsbane in the the picture as Cypher. But Sally says no, she just remembers always being told to risk their lives by Xavier or Magneto or Cable uh, or whoever was leading the team at the time, and then Rusty being murdered by Holocaust— which, w- wait a minute, Sally was never on the New Mutants when they had any of those leaders. She was only on them when they were running around on their own. But uh, regardless, the, the grief is, is real. There is this panel where she just doubles over thinking about Rusty Collins, you know, her, her boyfriend who was on the team with her, all of those teams with her, who was killed. And the panel just goes suddenly completely gray compared to the bright colors of the rest of the page. Like, it's such a small moment, and that color choice, that visual just hammers it home.
0: So Sunspot wakes a little bit later and goes to join Meltdown in the shower, but it's Siren whom he walks in on, um, and there's there's a moment of sort of high-caliber slapstick, after which Sally's roommate Desmond comes in to see what's up and flirts adorably with Siren, who is reminded that she's wearing just a towel and immediately flees. Young adult hijinks!
1: Yay! It's so much fun. It it feels so delightfully, like, slightly elevated early 20s. Moore just nails that.
0: Meanwhile, Mirage has gone to visit her father, Um, and things are going pretty well for him now that he is not half a demon bear. I love their conversation, and I love how frank she clearly is with her family about her life. He's saying, you know, it's nice seeing you on a horse that doesn't have wings. Right? Like, yeah, I decided that, that, you know, Brightwing should should get to run and fly around in in Valhalla with the, the other winged horses, so left them there for now. Although I
1: thought Brightwing was killed by Rainfire a while back. Well, Regardless, Rainfire is here for more horse-adjacent aggression.
0: Well, if, if Brightwind was killed by Rainfire, then presumably Brightwind would go to Valhalla.
1: Oh, right, where Brightwind would have been anyway. And, and there's also Darkwind at one point. Anyway, the point being, Rainfire is here. And
0: he's, he's clearly
2: been working on his villain speeches. You're the traitorous Jezebel who lied her way into my mutant's liberation front. Now. You're going to pay for your deception! And she, of
0: course, thinks that he's Bobby and offers to help him with this relapse. Um, he is not Bobby and not interested in help.
1: And the attacks just keep on coming, because meanwhile, Siren, Warpath, and Sally's aforementioned flirtatious roommate, Desmond, are hanging out in a coffee shop. And it's actually really nice. Like, Warpath looks back at the two of them while he's getting a drink, and he's like, huh, I would thought I would have been jealous, because I used to be into Siren, but no,
0: I just want good things for her. It's really sweet. Although Sally has mentioned that Desmond has a girlfriend, so kind of side-eyeing this.
1: Uh, Maybe they have an arrangement. I don't know. Anyway... There's no time to figure that out because a portal opens up in the air, pulls Siren through, and Warpath's super speed is the only thing that lets him follow her in time, and the art really captures just how fast all of this is. In each panel during the sequence, the other people in the coffee house don't move in the slightest. They are completely still. But we do see the portal opening, Siren freaking out as she's pulled through, Warpath diving in. It's like it happens in the blink of an eye. The art does the pacing perfectly well. There's also a pretty delightful X-Force fun fact as this all goes on.
0: The odds that an ordinary person will be abducted as repeatedly as the average mutant are astronomically low.
1: Elsewhere, after a hard conversation with Meltdown about why she's upset that doesn't even have the decency to turn into the kind of fight they're both better at, Bobby and Tabitha storm away from each other.
0: X-Force not-so-fun fact. Bobby is not having any fun.
1: But he wanders into a college pickup soccer game and has a great time. He used to be a soccer star when he was a kid. Or at least has a great time until a blast of flame comes from off-panel and incinerates one of his new friends just as they're starting to bond.
0: Like, there's a smoking charred corpse where once was a college student. It is pretty brutal. So Tabitha and Sally who are talking about their various regrets, see the flames and rush over to find Rainfire draining all the heat from Sunspot, who doesn't understand. He was Rainfire. Rainfire shouldn't exist anymore. Does this remind you of Eric the Red?
1: Oh, yeah! You're like, wait, you can't be Eric the Red. I'm Eric the Red. Eric the Red, the bondage viking who is only ever a disguise for other people? Well, okay, eventually it was retcon that he was more than that, but still... So, and listeners, if you don't understand why Rainfire is all about heat and flame and stuff, uh, Sunspot, in fact, did not used to have those powers. When he powered up in his Sunspot form, he would just be very, very strong. But when he was experimented on, when he was kidnapped by ponytailed rich guy Gideon, back in, like, X-Force number 14 and 15 ages ago, that's when his powers also came to include fire stuff, which Rainfire definitely has. I mean, it's right in his name.
0: So... Tabitha and Sally fight well, but no luck. Uh, Rainfire and Locus take all three of them away, at which point they chain Sunspot to an altar in his ziggurat in Las Vegas and hang everyone else around him upside down. And all of this is, of course, watched by James Proudstar Warpath, who has snuck along through Locus's portal.
1: So let's talk about the portrayal of the characters here, because it really jumps out. Like, Sunspot is shirtless and very buff. Rainfire is shirtless and very buff. All the upside-down, chained-up people have their shirts, like, riding up to show their midriffs. This is—I suspect it's got to be deliberate. This is a very sexy comic, but, like, not just in a sort of bondage-y, exploitative way. Like, the characters are always wearing light clothing. It's summer out. It feels very 90s MTV to me, but, like, in kind of an okay way. Like, it doesn't feel gross.
0: Yeah, no, it it doesn't feel prurient at all. It feels— teenage it feels young adult it feels realistic to how being that age feels
1: yeah like i was contrasting it in my brain with that one speaking of bright Blevins, that one old new mutants panel where the characters are changing into their costumes in limbo and we see wolfsbane changing into her costume like wearing her underwear behind a big privacy screen that warlock has turned into but we the readers can see that and that did feel a little prurient And I think part of it may just be, yeah, it's the age thing, because the midriffs that are shown are from characters who are chained up, like, this is not their choice, but they're a lot older.
0: They're a lot older, and they have much, much more self-expressed, self-identified, and self-propelled sexuality.
1: Very much so. Like, it's why Emma wearing barely anything, Emma Frost, uh, always feels fine, because that's how she chooses to present herself. She actively wants to present herself that way.
0: This is also, I mean, in a very basic sense, situationally appropriate drawing of fabric. True, true. It would fall that way, yes.
1: Uh, Why did Rainfire hang everyone upside down? I don't know. He's Rainfire. Anyway, that takes us to X-Force number 79, Set My Soul on Fire.
0: This is written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Adam Polina, with background assets by Guillermo Zubiaga, inks by Mark Morales and Rob Stull, colors by Steve Bucilato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft.
1: I was wondering about that background assets thing, because that's not something I've seen in a comic before, this thing that Guillermo Zubiaga does.
0: So it's rarely credited as background assets, but a lot of the time, um, well, what one of the options, if... if you're working on a tight schedule or depending on the, the balance of and, and the workload um, is to have to bring in a second artist, uh, second penciler to do backgrounds.
1: Yeah. And in fact, I think that's what's happening here, because in a few issues, uh, Zubiaga will be credited as assistant penciler. And I think he was around before this, too, because in number 77, you see a missing poster for him. And like I looked up what he looks like and it's his face. So clearly he drew himself into the background, even though he wasn't credited on that issue.
0: Yeah, um, and and whether background pencilers are credited varies a lot. I'm glad to see it here. So at the headquarters of the Damocles Foundation, Dr. Sigismund Joshua—remember him?—checks out a massive science fiction-looking gun and heads off on vacation.
1: Oh yeah, Dr. Joshua. He first showed up way back in 92. Uh, he was the scientist that experimented on Sunspot and gave him new powers. We also saw him briefly during Operation Zero Tolerance recently when he turned Ekaterina Graznova, Domino's nemesis, into a Prime Sentinel. So he's been around doing evil science for a while.
0: Yeah, and he is very thoroughly established as a bad guy. He is He is nobody's friend. Meanwhile, in Las Vegas, in a ziggurat, uh, Rainfire still has everyone hostage, and it turns out he's in a partially constructed casino that ran out of money partway through construction. So it's been functionally abandoned ever since, despite having this this nifty ritual chamber all set up for him.
1: And- Rainfire and Sunspot are, you know, hero-villain yelling at each other, and one thing I noticed and I appreciate is that they're still peppering in words from another language, but this time it's Portuguese words, not Spanish words. A lot of writers make the mistake of having Sunspot add Spanish words and phrases to his dialogue, but in Brazil, they speak Portuguese. And John Francis Moore, I think, caught himself, and from here on, that's what Sunspot and Rainfire, since he's very Sunspotty, do.
0: And James Proudstar is still watching from the shadows. And he does this as Rainfire does some villain explaining. His plan is to first kill the others, then Bobby. And he's been setting this up for ages. He's the one who arranged for Bobby's assets to be frozen. He's the one who's, who's basically just been manipulating everything for a long time. I'm really surprised that he doesn't have a room with little monitors on it.
1: Yeah, I, I think he's a very low-key villain since he left the MLF. I think it's basically just him and Locust teleporting around and doing mean things.
0: Tying people's shoelaces together.
1: Mm-hmm. So they trip in front of trains.
0: Eating a lot of sushi and not paying for it. Oh, shit. So Meltdown is able to break free, but her powers don't work, and nobody else's powers do either. And that's because Locus rescued a guy named Henry Wallinger from the Weissman Institute. Now, you might recall this as, as the place where Siren and Deadpool were briefly imprisoned. I, I believe it's where Shatterstar was, too, where the whole Ben Russell well... thing happened.
1: Yeah, we don't have the time to go into that again. It still doesn't
0: make sense. But, uh, yes, it's been around. Nice little callback. Henry's power is to shut down other mutant powers. It basically works exactly like leeches. Henry is also intellectually disabled, and there's a rainfire speech. Like, that is my moment of loving rainfire here.
2: Soon we will make the human world pay for every indignity mutant kind has suffered. Henry is a pariah by human standards, a freak to be hidden and institutionalized. When I am through with humanity, he will be treated as royalty.
0: That's right. Mutant liberation is disabled liberation. Fight for community-based services. Preach at Rainfire.
1: But maybe, like, dial back the murder a little.
0: Eh, I guess. Anyway, Rainfire has been manipulating Bobby via a shared psychic link, um, including creating Bobby's belief that he, in fact, was Rainfire, and he knows everything about Bobby. Bobby, at this point, knows nothing about him, but we, the readers, find out his background via, again, Dr. Joshua. Here's the deal. Rainfire was something called Project 19. As Project 19, he was a dude who had been placed in an oxygenated nutrient bath to slow unusual physical deterioration, ...into some kind of protoplasmic entity. And just for shits and giggles, Dr. Joshua transfused some of Bobby's blood into 19 to see what would happen. And what apparently happened was that um, Project 19 used it as a template to regenerate his own body... ...and it somehow established a psychic link between him and Bobby... And now he is going to kill Bobby because Bobby's always had everything that, that Project 19 never had. He said, yeah, he's got family, he's got friends, he's got resources. And Project 19 is done with that shit. And he is, is, just for the sake of irony, going to freeze Bobby to death by siphoning all of the heat from him.
1: Okay, but wait a minute, wait a minute, the last time we saw Locus, she said that she and Sunspot had been stuck in the future for a long time, and she even mentioned that she learned Cree while they were there doing future stuff, and also that CDs would be obsolete, which, that's true, and that Warpath would be called Pride Walker, and it turns out, when X-Force is like, wait, what about the time travel thing, Rainfire's like, oh dude, no, that didn't happen at all, it's just, you guys have to deal with time travel bullshit so much, we figured if we use that as a cover story, you would believe it. I fucking love that. Right? Like, it's either that or clones. Like, if something weird happens and you say it was time travel or it was clones, any given ex-team member would be like, yeah, okay.
0: Well, this one was clones faking time travel.
2: (laughs) That's so true. But I love
0: that. I love it when villains just lie. Like, when there's not a complicated explanation, when they were just like, no, I was just fucking with you. Like, that is, you may recall, when someone asked about our ideal outcome for the third Summer's Brothers situation. Like, that was my ideal, was that Sinister just said brothers to fuck with Cyclops.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Aw, uh, it's it's fun. Like, this is a giant retcon, but it's actually a really fun one. It makes for an interesting story, and it doesn't disrespect what came before, because,
0: again, these jerks would totally just lie. It really doesn't make any less sense than Bobby being Rainfire.
1: Yeah, especially since that was never really explained.
0: So anyway, Warpath comes to the rescue, he knocks a big statue down on Henry, and manages to best Locus in a fight at least temporarily, and with Henry out, everybody's powers click back on. So Skids is able to interrupt Locus from decapitating Thunderbird with a force field, but her own force field disrupts Locus's portal and yeets them both into a snowy landscape thousands of miles from Las Vegas. Oops,
1: And so everybody rescues Sunspot and beats up Rainfire and then tries to get the hell out of there because Rainfire's gonna burn the building down. Oh, and also, you know, all of Las Vegas because, as he says,
2: Las Vegas is the new American Mecca. What's more American than cheap thrills and the empty promise of easy money?
0: I mean, racism, probably.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, probably that too. <laughs>
0: and rescue this time comes from an unlikely direction that is dr joshua who shows up and shoots rainfire with his big science fiction gun which turns out to be a molecular disruptor beam rainfire burns dr joshua and bobby takes that opportunity to both grab the molecular disruptor beam and yell at dr joshua which deserved bobby shoots rainfire with with the big molecular disruptor beam and rainfire dissolves into black goo. It's very symbiote looking, and even more so when the goo coats Bobby. And when it comes away, we learn
2: There is no more Bobby. Now and forever, there is only Zool Rainfire. Oh shit.
1: That brings us to X Force number eighty, The Fire Within. Written by John Francis Moore, Bad, and Polina, with background assets again by Guillermo Zubiaga. Hi Guillermo. Inks by Mark Morales, colors by Gloria Vasquez, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. This issue's gimmick is a bunch of newspaper clippings and magazine clippings about DaCosta International, memos from the NSA, humorously relevant tabloids. We won't really go into them, but they're fun. This book is clearly having fun.
0: This book also answers the question of how you disambiguate the dialogue of two characters sharing the same body. In this case, Sunspot speaks in white text in red balloons, and Rainfire speaks in red text in white balloons.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's nice. So, um, yeah, now the two of them are actually kinda one person, like we thought was the case. And Sunspot's trying to take his body back over, and it is not working. So X-Force just tries everything they can think of. They do a fastball special where Warpath throws Mirage, and she fires her arrow from the sky, which, I don't know why that's better from than firing a psychic arrow from the ground, but it looks cool. Because it's cooler? It is It is cooler, yeah, definitely.
0: And I, I, could, I could see psychic powers being amped up by the knowledge that they look rad.
1: No, no, that makes sense. I mean, they're subjective, they're mental, of course. That's canon, I like it. So that doesn't work, but what does work is Meltdown shoving a time bomb down the possessed sunspot's pants.
0: Rainfire tries to intimidate her.
2: I know what you did when you were a runaway, living on the streets of New York, scared, vulnerable. You don't want to kill again, do you? Maybe
0: not, but that doesn't mean I won't play dirty.
2: You wouldn't. Try me.
1: Meanwhile, Siren's busy threatening the injured Dr. Joshua until he talks. That's where we learned the origin of the whole thing.
0: And we get a slightly different story of Project 19 here than we did in Dr. Joshua's flashbacks last issue. In this version, Project 19 was a young mutant made of black protoplasm with only a rudimentary consciousness.
1: And when Gideon hired Dr. Joshua to experiment on Sunspot, and he yoinked the cell sample to inject into Project 19— That basically gave Project 19 Sunspot's powers, personality, memories, everything. Like, Project 19 without Sunspot wasn't really a completely conscious entity.
0: See, this is why Jehovah's Witnesses are against blood transfusions.
1: This is what happens every time. So, X-Force has a plan other than just shoving time bombs down Rainfire's pants until he runs away. The plan is that they're going to use the molecular disruptor that Dr. Joshua brought to the fight and their powers to try to separate Rainfire and Sunspot before they permanently merge. I mean, okay, to be fair, it's not an elaborate plan, but Warpath is pretty entertained by this giant goddamn laser gun. Wow,
0: this is a big gun. I feel like Cable. The old Cable, I mean.
1: And they fight through Las Vegas, including my favorite part, through a wedding chapel, where both the priest and the groom are dressed as Elvis Presley, as Sunspot tries to resist, and X-Force continues fighting, and Rainfire continues, like, having villain speeches.
0: And we've seen Polina play with stained glass windows as framing before, but here the stained glass windows are of Elvis, and that kind of adds a degree of brilliant surrealism to the whole conceit. Oh, it's wonderful. But uh, the plan
1: works. Uh, Between the disruptor beam and Siren's overwhelming sonic scream, the black goo oozes off Bobby and is super mad. But things are maybe okay. There's this wonderful romantic panel of Meltdown leaning over the fallen but very much alive sunspot with, like you said, Jay, a bunch of stained glass Elvises in the background. It's great.
0: And Rainfire is now just a vaguely human-shaped sort of shadow. Like, it's almost a splatter on the ground. Which Bobby manages to absorb the same way that Rainfire had absorbed his body heat.
1: And now, Bobby is in his own Sunspot form again, not Rainfire's. A black silhouette, not a red silhouette. And seeing that black, like, without the red shot through it, it's so comforting. Like, yes, this is what Sunspot is supposed to look like when he's not possessed by a scary goo man.
0: Although he absorb, well, he ab- at least, know he, he absorbed the body heat and the, the powers of the Scary Goo Man. He did not actually absorb the Scary Goo Man because S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up to take away Dr. Joshua and also Rainfire's remains or possibly the living but much-reduced Rainfire. It's a little unclear.
1: And the good guys win. And we see this lovely panel of the team in their torn-up civilian clothes posing casually in front of a giant stained-glass window of St. Elvis Presley complete with rays of light emanating from him.
0: You left out one of my favorite details about the S.H.I.E.L.D. team, who once again are sort of the the men in black this time, except one of them is bald and has their logo tattooed on the side of his head, or at least drawn with a sharpie there. It's there. It's on on the side of his head.
1: Maybe he just really wanted a raise and thought his boss would appreciate that.
0: Maybe he fell asleep and someone else on the team drew it.
1: If he turns around the other way, it's just dicks.
0: Oh yeah, dicks all the way down. I wonder what
1: D-I-C-K-S stands for. We know what S.H.I.E.L.D. stands for. Tell us what you think, listeners. Anyway, later, Sunspot happily heads into DaCosta International to talk to the board and is confronted by the heroes for hire. That's right, Power Man, Iron Fist, Misty Knight, and Colleen Wing. They've been hired as bodyguards by DaCosta International, but, like, everything is fine. So DaCosta International just says, oh, oh, sorry, we'll still pay you. You can go home.
0: Also, uh, Power Man gets to make a brief... um reference to Colleen Wing's very, very, very abortive relationship with Cyclops, which I believe involved her giving him a key to his apartment and the, going on a brief date where he talked about Gina Bunch and then Arcade kidnapped them.
1: Oh, man. Uh, you know, don't don't date Cyclops. No. I mean, maybe you can date Cyclops, but not if you're Colleen Wing.
0: Maybe just don't date Cyclops.
1: Maybe just don't date Cyclops. So, yeah, Bobby has access to his wealth again. He's got his powers, he's got his wealth, he's no longer being chased by a scary flame man— And so he flies X-Force out to San Francisco to their new base that he bought, which is a warehouse, and he says all he had to do to get access to all this money was agree to just leave DaCosta International alone until he was 25.
0: I love the idea that he's disruptive enough that people will pay him egregious amounts of money to just sort of stay away.
1: (laughs) That, That seems about right. And he says, all right, not only that, we're going on
0: vacation to Hawaii in the next story arc. So I've got a question about going back to the Heroes for Hire. Did it look to you like when you saw Power Man and Iron Fist silhouettes, they were teasing that it was Juggernaut and Black Tom Cassidy?
1: Oh, you know, I didn't notice, but that would have been fun too. But that's said, that I also love Power Man and Iron Fist, so I don't know which I would rather see.
0: Oh, Power Man and Iron Fist make way more sense here. I just, I just think that, they, that, that it was a deliberate misdirect. That
1: could be. We've certainly seen Juggernaut and Black Tom before. They were in very early X-Force.
0: Well, we've seen them specifically in League with Gideon.
1: Ah, yes, that is true as well. And while Gideon's gone, he did have a holdover to Costa International for a while. hmm So there we go. X-Force is off the road. They have a base. This glorious, glorious run continues, and I'm so excited to cover more of it. And I'm also excited about the questions our listeners have for us. Sapphic Sophos asks on Tumblr, Has the Mutant Liberation Front ever been used as a name for a heroic team, or at least one that isn't strictly villainous? I know some names get reused on both sides of the moral fence, especially in AU-slash-future timelines, though The Marauders, as led by Kate Pride in recent years, comes to mind for a 616 example. And after reading more about the GLF, the Gay Liberation Front, who almost certainly were a name inspiration, it struck me as deeply fucked up if our only team-slash-teams under that name were just terrorists and not heroes or activists of some stripe.
0: So it may help to know that there are a number of real-life groups that have used the, the name fill-in-the-blank Liberation Front, but I absolutely agree with you here, and unfortunately as far as I know, there has only been the one iteration of the MLF in comics.
1: Yeah, and in-universe, I mean, I would love to see that as well. It would be a bit of a plot stretch for them to do so, because the MLF in the Marvel Universe were very, very public about claiming credit for some pretty awful, like, mass murders. So it would take a lot for people to get over that, I feel like. But all the more reason to redeem the name, right? I mean, even if they're less well-known, the Marauder's name got redeemed, and they were arguably even worse than the MLF in some ways.
0: An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I've been looking at alternate universes a lot recently, and I noticed there are a lot that are set in different historical eras. 1602, X-Men Noir, I think a couple of Westerns, stuff like that. If you guys could set the X-Universe in any historical time period that hasn't been done yet, which era would you pick and why?
1: Okay, so you would have to be careful to not be hella appropriative— But the Ming Dynasty of China in the 14th to 17th centuries, I want to see some Romance of the Three Kingdoms style wuxia martial arts military jumping around through the sky with big swords and uh, big color-coded armies fighting each other epics. But like with superpowers. Well, okay, more superpowers. Wuxia movies have people doing some pretty wacky stuff. But that's such a fun genre, and that would be such a fun direction to take ex-mutant stuff.
0: So I don't remember when X-Men Noir proper is actually set, so I may be duplicating the era, but I'm not really a fan of X-Men Noir, so I'm going to just pretend it doesn't exist, and say that I would go for the 1930s, and specifically I'd go for early New Deal 1930s, because I love the idea of the Marvel superhero universe on a larger scale even interacting with that.
1: That would be a lot of fun, agreed.
0: And also because you get some really, really interesting queer culture during that era.
1: More queer stuff.
0: I always approve. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today the microphone goes to the one, the only, Shinobi Shaw, who definitely knows what sex is. Ah, it
1: is just so gratifying, if you know what I mean, to see such a fine example of the sex from a close associate of the Hellfire Club. Here, we have Sunspot and Rainfire, two exceptionally shirtless mutants, one of whom is wearing some very sexnological sex pants, trading their heat back and forth. Obviously, this is what sex is, when a man and a protoplasm man have very strong feelings in a ziggurat. Now, I've done this over 4,000 times just in the last year, of course, but it's probably time for once more. 90s RF, be a dear and bring me my sexnological pants from the Hellfire Club wardrobe. What, you say I don't have any in there? Nonsense! They probably just got left in the sex... orb. After our last, you know, sex soiree. And Laurel O Valentine. Do you see how Rainfire chained up all of Sunspot's friends upside down to watch? To watch the sex? I've seen that many times at father's parties that he wouldn't let me. That I chose not to attend because I was too busy. Touching everyone's parts. Anyway, please round up some inverted sex witnesses, won't you? And I suppose I'll need a protoplasm
0: man. Does... Anyone know any protoplasm men? Anyone? And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
1: Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you want to help us stay on the air and stay entirely ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we return to Generation X. And so does Gaia.
0: And also the Seven
1: Dwarfs.
2: What?!